You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Oh, yeah, buddy. We are coming in hot on a Monday I tell you what, I had a great weekend. It was gorgeous out. Spent a lot of time with the family. Man, I got to shoot my bow. I'm feeling really confident uh, with the gearhead. And uh, I guess we'll just we'll do the commercial right now. Go find a dealer that shoots gearhead that sells gearhead bows and test them out, man. I'm telling you right now, I am every time I, this bow has brought back the fun and excitement for me personally uh, for shooting archery, you know, becoming an archer, trying to be the best archer that I can be. Uh, And it helps when you have a kick-ass bow that is just, it's awesome. Uh, I absolutely love it. No hand shot, center shot design. I mean, I could go on forever and tell you everything about uh, Gearhead, but go visit gearheadarchery.com. Look into everything with this bow um the center shot shot design uh, their riser and how it's built and how it is dead in the hand it's forgiving uh, man it's just really really awesome innovation and technology that's been put into this bow it's different than anything else that is currently on the market and uh i think everybody needs to go shoot a gearhead bow please go do it and then let me know what you think now Today's podcast, our guest, Scott Bestel. Uh, a lot of people know him as an outdoor writer, uh, and he's written in Field and Stream. He's written for North American Whitetail, and that's actually where I met uh, Scott over the phone. And uh, he interviewed me for an article about shipwreck, this buck that I had been chasing for several years. And uh, that's the first time we met. And then recently... I was flipping through the Field and Stream website, and uh, his name popped up on a couple early season hunting articles that I was reading, and I'm like, you know what? I need to get this guy on the podcast, and we need to talk about early season hunting strategy uh, and tips and tricks for early season hunting, and that's what today's podcast revolves around, uh, early season hunting strategy, early season hunting tips, tactics, and we go into a lot of detail on food sources. We go into a lot of detail on, you know, strategy, tree stand placement, access. So be sure to have maybe a notepad handy, take some notes and, uh, or listen to the podcast over again, because, uh, uh, you know, I, I definitely, Got some ideas rolling around in my head after talking with Scott, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. Again, go visit uh, gearheadarchery.com, and man, I'm going to keep this intro short. 
Let's get into today's podcast about early season hunting strategy with Scott Bestel. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Scott Bestel. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Dan. Thanks. How are hey, you? I'm doing great. I tell you what, uh, like we discussed the other day, man, this cool weather has got me itching to get in the tree stand. It's crazy. It feels. It felt like September three weeks ago here in Minnesota. So yeah, it's. I think it's going to be kind of fever pitch by the time we open in a couple weeks here. Right, right. And like we were talking about, it's it's going to be what November first. It's going to be seventy five, eighty degrees out. That's just the way it's going to work out. I I just can <laughs> see it coming a mile away. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get real tight into the bedding at that point. Exactly. So. Before we get started, and I want to talk today about early season hunting, hunting tactics, hunting strategy with you. Uh, you've, you've been successful over the years um, in months like September and October, so I want to touch base with, uh, with you on that. But first, well, throw some credentials at us. You're an outdoor writer, so who do you, who do you write for? Uh, well, I'm a, I'm the White Tails editor for Field and Stream magazine. Uh, I also uh, publish, you know, fairly widely in other national magazines. So um, I've been I've been uh, writing about deer for about twenty five, twenty six years, something like that. And I've been deer hunting since I was a little boy. Just kind of you know, like so many of us, you know, I I got started watching my dad and my relatives do it as a kid and uh, i couldn't wait to start and when i finally got my first buck at age 12 i was like yep i don't know what else life is bringing me but i'm being a deer hunter for the rest of it <laughs> just like that yep just like that i i knew uh you know it's funny i've i've lost girlfriends and i've changed jobs and i've done all kinds of crazy things just so i could keep chasing deer <laughs> yeah yeah i think uh if you're hardcore enough you you cross one of those bridges sometime in your life uh and i don't know if i'll ever get a new wife but i can tell you that uh and my i know my boss listens to this but if my job gets in between uh hunting and like me and hunting then there there might be uh there might be a problem might be some renegotiations going on (laughs) (laughs) absolutely working a night shift or something yeah, yeah, that's true. So I I want to talk a little bit about writing right off the bat. And this this just popped into my head, all right? You said you've been writing for roughly 25 years now. And when it comes to – this is this is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Uh, when I when I go online or I see a magazine and you, and it, and you have top 10 ways to kill a buck – Top five ways to kill a buck. Top ten. You know these these titles of these articles are all about trying to. You know everybody wants to kill a big buck. Everybody wants to kill a big buck. So for you, how how difficult is it? And maybe it's not difficult, but how difficult is it every year to come up with new new content to you know discuss in your writings about you know the end goal being how to kill a whitetail buck well i tell you if all if all i had to do is uh, deal with my limited knowledge i'd have been done uh, many many years ago <laughs> um but I, one of the beauties of my job is i get to meet and talk to a lot of passionate deer hunters like yourself and uh it's funny the the wider your web grows that way um you just uh, it's 
I I'm always find myself learning and asking guys, you know, what do you do? And, you know, there's all every great deer story that I've ever covered, there's always some little lesson in there. And um, I don't know, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm passionate about whitetails and whitetail hunting. And I'm also a very curious person. And I find that uh, a lot of the, you know, the experts that I write about and have admired and revered for many, many years, it's a, it's a really fascinating common quality among those gentlemen and, and women is that the more they hunt, the more questions they have. And that's the thing, I think, why whitetail hunting is so so compelling and so appealing to so many people is, you know, it's not a cookie-cutter thing. And, you know, you kill one big deer, that doesn't mean you're going to kill the next big deer. And you kill ten big deer, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I want to kill this type of deer. And there's always some new challenge, and there's just so many questions. I mean, look at this critter that lives, you know, in the back yards of millions of people and if killing a big you know you would think killing a big buck would be easy and it's not and anyone who's yeah. done it for a long time will tell you exactly the same thing you know a, a mature white-tailed buck is the most sought after trophy in north america and that you know that includes a lot of great big game animals like elk and bear and moose and all kinds of things so um it's just you can never quit learning about deer so i hopefully that translates into my writing that I'm curious, I'm eager for knowledge, and the people that I seek out are the ones that are saying, hey, I tried this new thing and it worked or it didn't work, or I learned this. And Anyway, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty dynamic and never-ending for me. Right. Yeah, I tell you what, that's one thing, um, doing what I do and being able to talk with guys who hunt from – you know, the north to the south to the southwest, you know, to right here in uh, the Midwest and, and, you know, low low pressure, high pressure type scenarios. It's amazing what and what guys will do and what lengths they'll go to to get the job done, you know, whether that's plant hundreds of acres of food plots or, you know, go in four hours early on a high pressured public land hunt. You know, and sit there all day in freezing temperatures or or opposite, you know, sit there all day in extreme high temperatures just to get a glimpse and a potential shot at one of these animals. It's amazing how men become and women become obsessed with this. I, I agree. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I think it just goes to show again, you know, that power that deer have over us and uh, and the challenge is never ending. I mean, you know, if you think you got it figured out, you you probably got another thing coming. <laughs> At least that's been <laughs> my experience. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Now, for for the listeners that may not know, me and you have a little history together. Um, man, I, I don't even know. I forget what year it was. I'm, I think 2011 or 10. I, that or was the one I came up with in my head when I was thinking about the shipwreck story. Yep. 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 So. You're you're somewhat good friends with Sam Calora, right? I've known Sam for years. Yep, 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 yep. So you know you know Sam, and uh, Sam was the guy who ended up killing Shipwreck. And so the story that you wrote was a little bit of, about me, who the guy who'd been chasing him for several years, and then a little bit about Sam, who ended up killing him uh, on on a neighboring property. So. Uh, when it comes to stories like that, uh, stories like shipwreck, uh, and let's leave the shipwreck story out of it, but are there any other types of, or, or maybe an example that you can provide us of just a really cool story that has stuck with you uh, throughout your 25 years of writing? 
Oh man, there's so many good ones. The shipwreck story. I'm I'm going to talk about the shipwreck story. I'm over I'm overruling you on that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the shipwreck story because it says so much about what makes deer hunting special for me. Um, is that you can go after big deer like that deer, and you can, as you did, you know, make a passionate pursuit, and that deer can almost, you know, take over your life, but. If you're not lucky enough to kill it, and if your neighbor kills it, I mean, you were a gentleman enough and a sportsman enough to recognize that, hey, he got that deer fair chase. I didn't have my, you know, name tag on it, and you were big about, you know, how you treated the situation. And Sam uh, was the same. He shared the shared the success with you. And I tell you what, you know, you and I have been around this long enough to know that people can get pretty ugly about big deer sometimes. They can get possessive and. Yeah. territorial and you know it just pretty much acts like infants and uh that to me that's the that's the dark ugly side of, of deer hunting and it doesn't have to be that way um right. these are wild critters and we're all after them with the same passion and hey man whoever gets them legal and fair that's we should all celebrate it and that's what i love about stories like about about shipwreck right and and one thing that really stuck out with me and of course i lived it was that I chased, I put my heart and soul into chasing this buck and I had, I definitely had my opportunities. Uh, I failed a lot. I learned a lot. And at the end of the day, no matter how hard you work, you still may not win or you still may not accomplish your goal, but the hardcore guys, the passionate ones like that year when Sam killed shipwreck, I think I was even more passionate and more ready for that following season so I could get out there and do it all over again. Yep. Yep. Neat. Well, that's, that's cool to hear. And it is, because a lot of guys, um, I mean, I've heard of guys that have done these one buck campaigns and they don't kill the deer and it's just like, you know, <laughs> it just knocks them for a loop. And it's, you know, uh, I think, you know, I can see why people get obsessed with deer. I've had a couple that have gotten under my skin that I want to really kill. And, uh, but, you know, you, you try to keep it in perspective that, yeah, I want right. this deer and I'm willing to sacrifice, you know, stuff to get him. But, hey, you know, at the end of the day, he's a wild critter and uh, I, my name tag is not him. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now let's transition a little bit. And for states like, I think Kentucky is already open. There's some other southern states I, I, I think uh, are open. Uh, Wisconsin is getting ready to open. When uh, When's opening day for Minnesota? We open the same day Wisconsin does, September 16th. Yeah, we're always, we're pretty much lined up that way mid-September about every year. Okay, so mid-September is opening day for a lot of uh, states and then transitioning into October 1st for Iowa and Illinois and, you know, some of those, uh, uh, some of the other Midwestern states, even, even further south. And that's what I want to talk about today is early season hunting, early season strategy, um, and a little bit of the ins and outs uh, of how to maybe get a get the job done uh, early season. Now, you have you've you've had success in September uh, throughout some of the years, even into early October. Now, we'll call that early season success. Yep. But what I want to do is. I always hear, uh, you know, everybody has their opinions, and you hear 
the law of averages is kind of one of those things where, hey, you're never going to kill a big buck early season. Um, you know, you got to wait for the rut. You got to wait for these big boys to get on their feet. But before that happens, this there's this magic window in early season where some of these big mature bucks are still on their summer patterns and uh, are somewhat vulnerable. So let's touch on that once. When when you were successful on your early season hunts, what were some of the, the key things that allowed you to be successful that time of year? Well, um, to me, there's a, there's a couple things that, that have to happen. One, if, if you've got particular knowledge of a big deer, obviously through you know long-range observation or, or scouting cameras, if you're able to pick up on, you know, you mentioned that late summer pattern, that's and that's critical to a lot of this early season success is that, you know, you get a deer that's regularly visiting, uh, well, an egg country, you know, an up bean field or alfalfa field, you know, they can they can almost get on a train track, you know, on, on evenings when the conditions are right, it's like they're going to be there. But that, um, so that said, I mean, that, that deer is obviously highly vulnerable to the harvest if you hunt them smart. But that said, um, that window is closing really quickly. I mean, it, as you know, right now here in Minnesota, I mean, the beans are starting to dry down a little bit, not as attractive to deer. And, uh, you know, and other things happen. I mean, when our, when our archery season opens, our small game season opens. So, you know, we've got squirrel hunters in the woods, we've got ginseng diggers. You know, all of a sudden there's stuff happening in the whitetail world that wasn't happening just two weeks ago. And so um, you've got to kind of find a buck that's in a secluded spot where he's not going to get bothered by people. But if you can pick up on that summer pattern, they can be really, you know, they can be vulnerable. One of my best friends uh, lives in a town nearby, and uh, he starts on July 4th, uh, and he's out every evening glassing fields on the farms that he hunts, and he's killed some, well, he's, I think he's killed well over 30 P&Y class deer, and some of them are way above P&Y, and I, I bet you about half of those come in the first two weeks of season. Wow, and that blows my mind because I, I've i never been able to hunt in Iowa that, that summer pattern buck. I, I think that for me in the properties that I hunt, there's, there's that transition that happens somewhere in late September. Uh, we all, we all know, and we, we've all seen it where the bachelor groups break up the, the antlers become hard and, uh, and there's like a re uh, a redistribution of bucks or the, the does tend to stay in the same spot from what I see because they call that home all year round, but the bucks kind of, there's a little jostling, jostling for position and whatnot. So I agree. Yep. What are some of the conditions that a, a hunter, a bow hunter needs to have for the stars to align and, and a big buck get on his feet in daylight in this, this late September, early October timeframe? Okay. Um, well, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, you do have to have some factors line up. And, and so, you know, I talked a lot about the summer pattern before, and, and I also said that that, you know, that window is closing really quickly for a couple of reasons. And one of the biggest is, is that food sources are changing. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, and, you know, very accurate observation. I mean, there is a, there is kind of this, you know, redistribution of deer. I mean, the bachelor groups, it's like a, you know, it's like the end of the football season and they're all heading home to, you know, take a little, and that's exactly what happens with deer. I mean, they're 
you know, uh, especially when you've got a good mature buck component, you know, you've got deer, big deer that just, they don't want to be around each other all of a sudden because, hey, Bob over there is in hard antler and I just don't feel like fighting them very much, you know. So they go find their spots where they kind of feel comfortable. So what happens in this early season transition, in my opinion, is you've got deer that are naturally relocating to kind of get away from each other, and then you've got food sources that are changing really quickly. Um, uh, around here, uh, I, in fact, I saw it just uh, within the last 10 days, that deer that were coming out the bean fields and alfalfa fields like clockwork, and all of a sudden our white oak acorn started to drop, and bam, I mean, you could find a deer on a field to save your life. Um, so that that's another thing that's happening, and, and, you know, these bucks that were once kind of predictable all of a sudden seem not as predictable, and, and what they've really done is they've just switched food sources. They, you know, they've moved the, their home core a little bit, They've also probably got some more sheltered food sources like white oak acorns or, or some other things that are happening. And uh, so it's, you've got to kind of be on your toes to, you know, to keep up with that shift. Okay. Now, you mentioned something that I feel plays a huge role in early season uh, traffic, and that is what you just said, the acorn drop. Um, mm-hmm. Last year, the farm that I, that I spend most of my time on didn't have a big acorn drop. Very, very small one. This year, different story. Huge, huge acorn drop. And that just screws everything up, especially for the guy who's hunting field edges, um, trying to you know get a, a deer to come out to a cornfield or a, a, an alfalfa field or whatever. So let's talk a little bit about strategy for a scenario like like we just mentioned. And that is an early season hunt where the acorn drop is there, you know, one of these buffer year type acorn drops. Yeah, it's, um, it's really, it can be a real head scratcher. And I tell you what, I really didn't learn how to hunt acorns well until I actually started hunting the big woods in Northern Wisconsin with one of my really good friends who happens to be a logger. Uh, And Tom knows just a ton about trees. I mean, he's been, cutting timber his whole life ever since he was in high school and he's well into his 40s now so anyway he's, he's a big public land bull hunter and invited me up to hunt uh, many years ago and we just started hunting and a lot of it was early season hunts and uh, I tell you what I thought I knew something about scouting early season deer and I didn't know squat until I started hunting <laughs> with him because we would just he, you know bless his heart he's got an intimate knowledge of thousands and thousands of acres of public land and we would just take off on these scouting jaunts in the middle you know start mid-morning and scout till mid-afternoon and i mean we walked our tails off going from oak stand to oak stand to oak stand finding which ones were hot and uh and i really i really learned a lot about uh what you know what to look for in good good oaks uh what you know what which ones deer are hitting, which ones aren't as attracted to deer, and the type of sign to look for for an early season ambush. So um, uh, I can go into, into detail about that if you want me to. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hear it. Okay, so, you know, it's really interesting. We, we're, I'll, I'll think about a September hunt that we had just um, two years ago, and we walked back in this remote logging road. There's a huge red oak sitting there um, there's up there it's it's primarily red oaks so of the of the odd white oak every once in a while but mostly red oaks which dropped fairly early up there anyway we came upon this red oak growing right next to the logging road and i mean you've been there before you walk under one of these trees and you just about got to watch that you don't you know skate across them like marbles there were acorns everywhere and so we're looking for you know i'm looking for deer tracks and tom's like come on let's go and i'm like you know, buddy, there's acorns everywhere here. There's got to be deer. And he goes, no, they're not. 
And I said, what do you mean, no, they're not? <laughs> and he said, look at those acorns. And I looked at him like, well, yeah, what? He says, they've all got caps on them. And so I said, so what's the big deal with that? And he says, capped acorns, 85 to 90% chance it's rotten inside. Deer won't eat them until it's their last thing that they can eat. I'm like, wow. all right. So I started, and he goes, go ahead and try them. Uh, so we each picked up an acorn, cracked them in, a, in our teeth, and yep, sure enough, they're wormy inside. And he said, they will eat these in December when there's nothing else. But he said, right now, there's a lot of, of other stuff. So he said, let's keep looking. So we found another red oak, quarter mile away, almost no acorns under it, but buck sign everywhere, deer droppings everywhere. And uh, he goes, this is it. This is the ice cream tree. And I'm like, okay, ice cream tree. He said, yeah, these <laughs> acorns, they're not capped. I mean, we found a few, just a handful laying around. And he said, you know, pop one of these open. And I did. And it's just pure white meat inside. Perfect. And he said, these acorns taste better to deer. And they know where these trees are after years of living around them. And they will come to them. And so anyway, we started looking around, as I said, rubs everywhere, even on small trees. And he said, you know, we're sitting this tree tonight. And we did. And, and he shot and killed uh, like a 155-inch buck. Now, this is September in the big woods. And 150-inch buck up there in public land, you know, lives through deer and wolves and hard winter. That's like a booner anywhere else. So that really, that one really opened my eyes. I mean, it was one of those deals where, you know, it's not just enough to find a tree that's dropping acorns. You've got to find the tree that the deer like to eat the acorns yeah. from. Right. Now, from a terrain perspective, where was this acorn tree at? Because it's almost like you have to treat that particular we don't think of oak trees. I mean, we 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 think of them as a food source, kind of, but not the same way we think of like a food plot or a cornfield, right? Uh, right. So, because because that is an enclosed, isolated food plot in the middle of the timber, where there's probably acorn trees all around, doing exactly what you said, dropping all over the place. So how did you guys go about treating that particular tree? Because that's what you're doing. You're hunting a particular tree, it sounds like. And how did you go about accessing that that tree? Um, when did you go in? Well, that what one was, was really a, a, like? uh, Yeah, I agree. And that, it's, you know, you bring, you bring up an excellent point, Dan, that, you know, you, you have to treat – you know, when when you've got an oak tree that's dropping acorns in the middle of the woods, you have to go into food plot mode, you know. Okay, deer are going to approach this thing the same as they would a food plot, and I have to figure out where I think that's going to be and how I'm going to get in and out of here without spooking deer. And um, we lucked out a little bit on that tree because it was kind of, so there was a, a pretty solid block of timber within, oh, 60, 70 yards of that tree, but it was kind of set apart from the woods and that it was, growing out in a spot where it was just kind of grassy and brushy, and maybe that was the reason why it was dropping such good acorns is because it had good sunlight on it. But anyway, so that one was really pretty easy. Um, I We had another early September hunt just a few years before that where we found a very similar scenario, and, um, you know, we, we scout fairly aggressively, but then when we find a tree like that, we stop, and then we just start looking around because we know we've, I mean, we've found the honey hole. This is where deer are. They're eating, and they're probably not bedded very far away. And so we talk in nothing but a whisper. We start walking out trails just for a short distance and very quietly and, you know, kind of mindful of scent and trying to figure out, you know, A, where are deer bedding? How are they getting here? And how am I going to get in and out of here, you know, and set my stand without, without bumping them? So it takes a little 
takes a little head scratching and you, you know you just uh but you just have to use your basic you know deer hunting 101 i mean i gotta find out the wind direction and i gotta figure out which tree i can sit in and, and probably just as importantly which trees i'm not going to get away with uh based on the sign that i'm reading but uh it you know it, it, it's a challenge and sometimes you're going to guess wrong but uh i i guess i'd rather guess wrong than sit at home and watch the packers <laughs> that's right now for for that example uh how did because deer have the bed travel corridor sometimes they have a staging area and then a food source and then back through that same kind of pattern that's kind of a yep. typical pattern but we're so for this these acorns and I, and I'm sure that wasn't the only time you hunted a specific tree are you hunting in that tree are you hunting right next to that tree or are you hunting the travel corridor to get to that tree or the staging area to get to that tree well that's a great question um and it's i think it's a, one that you kind of have to solve for each setup i guess ideally ideally i'm you know if if it's like a no-brainer like hey i know there's two trails coming in here and i can shoot the both of them from this tree I'm going to set up there off the off of the food source itself, you know, so that I don't because um, you know there's going to be non-target deer that walk into that into that oak tree just like there are going to be if you're hunting a bean field or a food plot or or any other thing. So you've got to be mindful of not spooking those deer. So you know it's just kind of a it's just kind of a cutting it close kind of deal. I mean, if I if I think I can get by with sitting you know 40 50 yards off and still kill my buck, he might tip you off to that by leaving a nice little rub line on one trail that isn't on another trail. Um, but the other thing is sometimes you don't, you can't read that sign and you have to hedge your bets and say, hey, you know, when it comes down to fishing or cutting bait, I got to be able to shoot to that oak tree because I'm not positive where this deer is coming from. Um, and so you just, uh, it's kind of a dynamic situation. And the, the beauty of hunting that way to me is I don't I am not relying on a stand that I've got set up. I've got a stand on my back and climbing sticks and I can pick any tree I want. And uh so it's kind of you know I can sit one tree one night and you know say hey that wasn't the deal and tomorrow night I'm going to be in this tree. And another basic tip that I feel is is worthwhile for early season is it's always easier to go outside in than do the opposite. You know, you can, if you're not positive where the deer are coming from or what tree you need to be in, then set up off the action intentionally. And you might get lucky that buck might walk right by you, but you might just see things for one night and go, ah, now I got it. But if you set up right in the tight stuff right away, thinking I'm killing that deer tonight, and you guess wrong and you blow them out of there, guess what? I don't care if it's big woods, Alabama, Iowa, Wyoming, that buck isn't coming back there probably. <laughs> if he knows he's, if he knows you've busted him, that's the end of it, and you've you've lost your chance. So it's always easier to go outside in than the opposite, than be too aggressive and then go, oops, you know, better go find another tree. Right. So talking about early season movement, you know, there's that there's that summer pattern, right? Just like you said, it's like a train track, man. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, you know, and they are, they're, they're, they are predictable. You know, I have uh, some trail cameras right now that if I could start hunting tomorrow, I could probably go out and harvest one of my target bucks, but I can't uh, because of, right. uh, you know, obviously Iowa doesn't open until October 1st, but other than food sources, you know, or I shouldn't say 
other than, you know, the testosterone kicking in and the food sources changing, what are some other, uh, other things that are happening in the woods or happening in, in, in these hunting areas that may change a buck's early season pattern uh, from that summer or that early season food source? Well, you know, we talk a little bit about social dynamics, and uh, I think, you know, I think bucks just, um, you know, you get some bucks that are, um, they're just shy and they're just kind of loners and they don't, maybe they don't want to fight, and so they're, you know, they're going to relocate to an area that's where they, where they encounter fewer deer. Um, similarly, there are bucks that, you know, man, they just kind of plant their feet and um, they're just going to stay where they want to stay, and uh you know, it's interesting. I mean, you gave me the liberty of including early October in this time period, and I killed one of my favorite bucks, not one of my best scoring bucks, but one of my favorite bucks the first week of October in Wisconsin. Um, and I shot him on a friend's farm, and he was already tagged out, so he gave me the liberty of hunting there. And he told me about this deer that was coming out to this bean field, you know, pretty pretty predictably, and he told he kind of knew where it was. And he said, the problem is, is that you can't set up on that deer there because he said it's, uh, well, it was bluff country, swirly winds, and he said, you'll, you'll just get busted. There's no, no other way. And I said, well, what do we do? And he said, you need to bring a decoy back there. And there's a stand, and it was about whew, 250 yards from where the crack where that buck was coming out. He said, just pop up in that stand I've got there and stick that decoy and face it right towards that crack. And uh, so that's what I did. And anyway, night went by, nothing's happening. A little buck came out, finally doing some fawns. And there was about 20 minutes of shooting light left. And all of a sudden, this big dude came out in the crack right where my friend said he would. Fed for a minute or two. And as soon as he got lifted his head up, I gave him a little grunt. And he looked up and he saw that decoy. And I shot him about two minutes later, nose to nose with that thing. He he was an aggressive deer. He saw another buck staring at him, and he just came trotting. Now we're so we're talking. I think it was October third. So we're talking three weeks from even what I consider good pre-rutting activity. So that right. social dynamic is always playing out in deer. I mean, you just I was just lucky. I had an aggressive bully type deer that didn't like other bucks looking at him. Right. And just for my own personal knowledge, was this a mature buck, like a, a three, four, five-year-old deer? He, you know, he was definitely three and might have been older. Yeah, I mean, uh, he was a he was a gnarly deer, and he was it was really interesting. Uh, my friend had a photo uh, when I shot that buck. He had broke off the end of his main beam on one side, and I was so excited watching him in, watching him come in that I didn't, I knew, I just thought there was some junk over there. I didn't even see it. I, sh- I shot this deer and I'm like, holy cow, he's all, he's all busted up. And Ted had a picture of this buck only five days before and he was completely clean. So he had been fighting that hard from, you know, so we're looking at velvet shed, you know, I'm just starting to get my first velvet shed bucks on trail camera. So we're looking at first of September to the first of October, he fought hard enough to break his rack and he was you know, with if had he been complete, he'd have been oh, you know, one fifty ish. So right, and I and I think that that brings a huge point. You talk about social d- dynamics, and I think there are two times of the year where bucks become very aggressive, and, and we all know that the rut uh, brings out high testosterone. But the second that that velvet comes off, there is an instant like 
fighting for position. You know, I am the king. Okay, well, if you're the king, then I'm second, uh, then I'm third. And, and they have to figure that lineup out, and they do it by aggression and, and dominance. I couldn't right? agree more. Yeah. So, and the, the one thing that I noticed, and, and maybe you can uh, agree or disagree, but I see that a lot on trail cameras. Uh, on mineral stations yep. throughout the entire year where uh, a young buck will be there. The next picture of the series is a big buck coming in, kicks him off. He has his share of the mineral station and then comes, and then the, the, the younger buck will come back and finish up. Right. No, so, I, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. And, um, you know, it, it's one of the, it, in fact, uh, it, a couple, it was just a couple years ago, we had a couple big bucks. Uh, there's a photo in the paper of a pair of bucks that had locked up, uh, found dead, you know, and it was, uh, September 28th, I think. And, you know, I, I brought that up to one of my buddies and he, I'm like, you know, check this out. He's like, yeah, isn't it funny? He said, everybody associates these knockdown fights with the rut and obviously they do occur then but your point is equally uh, equally true is that you know they the whole that whole social dynamic thing of losing your you know losing the velvet and you know that's another interesting thing you watch a bachelor group together in velvet and they will posture to each other and they'll you know you can tell a deer that wants to be dominant but you know they're not banging their antlers together they're just kind of doing it through body language and bumping each other but it's funny once that velvet comes off whole different deal a buck that have been kind of you know middleman for the whole summer's like hey all of a sudden, these things on top of my head are hard, and I'm going to use them. <laughs> and it's, uh, it gets pretty interesting. So, yeah, there, that, uh, there's a lot of jostling going around in September. So when, when that early season decoying technique worked for you, have you used it since? And have you found success doing early season decoying uh, in, in September and October? We and uh you know my i tell you what i'm going to give you an ideal for uh, idea for making a million dollars and and all your listeners too <laughs> come up with a decoy that's quiet <laughs> and easy to maneuver and 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 bring around uh you know to your stands and i mean you'll knock the outdoor industry at least the deer hunting industry on its on its ear because you know i love the decoy but right now the you know the decoys that are out there are i mean let's face it they're kind of a pain to deal with and so there i have used decoys you know and and i have all the results have not been that you know that dramatic but i can't tell you how many times i have been in a stand sometimes hunting an individual deer and thought wow would a decoy be the ticket right now i mean this is perfect it's open i know i've got a deer that's mature that feels comfortable moving around in daylight and uh and um you know a lot of times like i said in early season i don't set up in a tree the first time i set up on a buck i sometimes don't, i set up in a tree where i i don't think i'm going to kill him i'm just going to watch him i want to make sure what he you know that i know what he's doing before i move into you know for that 20 yard shot but i remember one i killed uh in in 2012 and I, sat, I watched him the first night from an observation stand. I'd got a tip off from the farmer that he was visiting this corner of this field. And so I, I, I popped out into an observation stand, and, and he came out exactly where the farmer said he was going to. And I would have shot him that first night if I would have had a decoy out. I, I know I would have because he came out. He was kind of facing my stand. And uh, I'm, this, was a, this was an adult, mature, 160-class buck that just felt really he – was, he was just felt like he was the cock of the walk. You know, he was – tough and bad and mean and um i know if i would have had a decoy facing him i would have shot him that first night but i had to i had to wait a couple nights which was fine 
<laughs> I still got them. <laughs> Absolutely. So the next thing I want to talk about is ag fields. Um, where, where you hunt up in Minnesota, is, are you in big timber country or are you in that uh, that timber ag split? Yeah, I'm in mixed. Uh, we're in bluff country, not too far from the Mississippi River. So, yeah, it's you, what we've got here, Dan, is largely um, our ridge tops are, are farmed. Uh, so, you know, big fields of, you know, uh, beans, corn, or alfalfa. And then our uh, the ridges are heavily timbered, you know, three to 600 feet high. And then on the valley bottoms, again, more usually more ag unless it's a palm you know, an undisturbed uh, wooded valley bottom. But usually, usually, so you're basically looking at, you know, egg on top, egg on the bottom. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's somewhat similar to where I hunt in uh, Iowa. I, there's, um, I, I have some terrain, but it's it's mostly uh, flat with fingers, right? Your typical Midwestern yep. type of uh, hunting. Now, mm-hmm. over the last two years, I have learned the, what, crop like especially corn can do to a a herd of deer and what i mean by that is uh cover right um yep i i recently found an ag field it's 80 acres with a buffer strip that runs right through the middle of it and there's two other little buffer strips and you want to talk about deer bedding uh this time of year i walked through there to check trail cameras the other day and noticed you know, and that's where all of my big mature buck pictures are at. It's in the middle of this standing cornfield, and I couldn't find them for years. I couldn't find them until one day I was just like, you know what, screw it. I got an extra trail camera. I'm going to put it right here. How how much do you think standing crops affect early season deer movement? Oh, I think they can be a big. Uh, a, a big deal. I mean, I, I interviewed a biologist once who called corn the tree of the prairie, and I, I was that's always <laughs> stuck with me because you know it, it's really a pretty accurate statement. I mean, what you know, living where you do in Iowa and where I do in Minnesota, I mean, there's a lot of acres of corn around, and you know, deer. Uh, I, one of the, I know, many many years ago, one of my neighbors told me one of the coolest stories. He was he and I are very close buddies, and we hunt together and. He shot just a great buck in early September, just this time of the same time of frame that we're talking about. And he had found what what we were talking about earlier. He found an oak dropping acorns right on the edge of a cornfield, and he said it was just torn up. He said a idiot could have figured out the deer sign there. It was just droppings everywhere and a few little rubs and you know, acorns all cracked to pieces, and he's like, Man, I gotta set up here. And so he sets his stand facing the timber. And he's like, I'm not seeing anything. What's going on? And about 20 minutes before dark, he hears this rustle, and it's in the corn. You know, he's facing the timber, and this this dandy buck walks out of the corn to the to the oak tree, and he and he kills him. And he's like, Ah, now I get it. <laughs> he's not right. betting in the timber; he's betting in the corn. So, yeah, it's a huge deal. But you know that when I when we, you had asked me to talk about early season hunting, that scenario just popped in my head because it's such a classic example of what we face in farm country is that you know the corn is the cover and um and a lot of times we find this great sign um and it's right on the edge of a cornfield and we've got to keep in mind that those deer probably aren't you know may not be coming from where we think they're coming from right so as a 
as opposed to a lot of guys are walking these field edges this time of year, and there might be some scrapes along these field edges that they assume the deer are bedded in the timber when in all actuality they could be on the slightest terrain change in one of these cornfields. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And and I love your comment about finding the finding, you know, getting great trail camera pictures in these, you know, in these waterways and set aside areas. And I did the I did the exact same thing that you described and it was such an eye opener for me. I was running out of places to put trail cameras and I found this grass waterway that led that cut two cornfields in two and led down into some uh you know, into a small block of timber and I'm like I don't know, this looks stupid, but I'm going to do it. And I set this camera up facing up that waterway, and it was the first card pull. I was like, holy crap, Bethel, how have you been missing this all these years? You know, it was just buck after buck after buck, and I'm like, they are living out in the, you know. Yeah, and it, it just, it blows your mind because in this buffer strip, you know, for my strategy, it, I might, get in there and hunt this year you know i have some other uh issues i got a baby coming here so i doubt i'm able to hunt uh anything serious but these these cornfields these standing crop fields where you know a scenario that me and you are are talking about typically don't have very many trees uh, good quality trees um in, in something like this do you think that a ground blind would be a good option in a, in a scenario like what we've discussed? I think it could be excellent depending on the setup. And I've also, I've hunted early season setups like this where I'll just, uh, I'll just tuck a couple rows into the corn. Uh, and just sit on a stool and, um, and just clip a little shooting lane or two, just removing corn leaves. You know, I, I, all my neighbors here are farmers, so I don't mess with their, I don't mess with their income. I'm not <laughs> knocking down corn stalks, <laughs> but I'll, you know, I'll take enough leaves off of those stalks so that I can get a shot, you know, a shot right in front of me and maybe a couple of, you know, a quartering one way and then a quartering the other way. And I'll just tuck in a stool and, and you think about it. I mean, you, what you've done is created the same scenario as you've got if you're in a, in a ground blind. You know, you've got nothing but dark cover behind you. And, uh, that's always, in my opinion, the, you know, the best camel you can have is the stuff that's behind you that breaks up your silhouette. Well, what's, what's, I mean, you look into, look into a cornfield and it's just, you know, two rows in, it's just a wall of black. So, yeah, um, I, I believe in being really aggressive in situations. If you've got a deer that you, you know, if you think you've got a deer that's, you know, fairly predictable and walking down a waterway or set aside or the edge of a cornfield, I mean, that's a, I do that every time. You know, it's, it can be frustrating because we all like to be up on a tree stand. You can see farther. You'll see more deer. But, you know, what would you rather do, see more deer or see the one that you want, like, 15 yards away? Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And And when you get... Early, you know, early season people always say, um, you know, you got to be careful. You don't want to spook that buck. You don't want to spook that buck. But if you're hunting in a scenario where you know that that corn or those beans are going to come out in the next 15 days or 30 days, do you feel at that point, because that the entire terrain at that point is going to change, do you feel that it's okay to be really aggressive and jump in after some of these some of these deer when when you know that the crops are going to be coming out? Absolutely, I you know it's it's funny. Yeah, I I do I do agree with that. You know, it's it's funny that guys will get so 
They're not afraid to be aggressive during the rut, and sometimes guys, I think guys get too aggressive during the rut. You know, they should, they should let deer come to them because the deer are moving so good now. But you know, they're not. They're they're uh, you know they're really afraid to get aggressive in early season, and sometimes that's when that buck is the most vulnerable. And as you say, uh, I, the thing about early season is the clock is ticking because everything changes so fast. You know, like. So, you know, you got that early acorn drop, and then that stops, and then maybe something else, some other natural natural food comes ripe, and then they're on that. And then, then pretty soon the combines are firing up, and the beans are coming out, and then a little bit later the corn comes out. And, you know, everything is just changing. It's so dynamic. And, you know, given the fact that, hey, you know, I know how to play wind direction, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can not to spook a buck, I think what's wrong with getting aggressive? You're, the clock is ticking on that deer, and come the rut, you you may not know where that deer is. I mean, he's if he's a big mature buck in that area, he's probably breeding the first doe before every other buck does, and then he's off to the races. Who knows where he's going to be? But early season, you've got a shot at him. So I I'm all for swinging at him. Right. So early season. How how much of a role do you think does play in buck movement? Let's say before October fifteenth. Um, I kind of see. I still think bucks are kind of in that loner phase. At you know uh, up to that the time that you mentioned. Um, you know they're. I mean. You know, obviously, any time a doe pops in the heat, a buck's going to breed as soon as his velvet's off. He doesn't care if it's November 15th or September 15th. But for the most part, I think they're kind of, um, you know, I think they're kind of separate at that time of year. They don't, uh, they're not really thinking that way. And, you know, one one thing that I noticed when I've used decoys in early season um, is, you know, if you use a buck decoy, most does will avoid it just because they just—they just don't want to be around bucks, you know. Um, whereas if it's a doe decoy, they'll come running up to it, you know. So who's that? I've never seen her before. So that kind of tells me that you know there's kind of a little separation going on. And um, so yeah, I think uh, you know until now, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. Um, one of the most ferocious scrapes I ever saw in my entire life, I found October 8th, which is really, really early. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought somebody had made a mock scrape or two out there. I mean, what I did was found a series of three scrapes together, again, first week of October. And, I mean, it just reeked in there, and I was like, I thought somebody was messing with me. And I looked at it, and I'm like, well, this, this is a big deer in here. And I couldn't sit that area that night. But as I was walking out, I could glass it, and I saw just this monster eight point there. And um, anyway, I put my dad in that, in that area the next night, and he he missed a shot at that deer. And all I could uh, all I can think is happening is that a, you know a doe cycled in early, you know, a month earlier than normal, and which makes perfect sense. I mean, they'll 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 cycle in a month later than normal. Uh, why can't well, some of them be thirty days early? So, right. but for the most part, I would say that you know uh, the does aren't a huge factor at that in that early season time frame. Right, right. So let's talk about sign just a, a little bit because you brought it up. Um, does is sign is is sign like a big rub or a scrape? Let's say uh, on a traditional place like a field edge or on top of a ridge, like say a rub line. Is that something to get excited about if you find it scouting early season? Yeah, I'm always excited about that. In fact, the earlier I find buck sign, the more excited I am. And, and here's why I think that is, is that 
Um, you know, a yearling buck, that first year he has antlers, he doesn't really have a clue why they're there. And, and research has proven this. They've done studies on, you know, rub frequency and when it happens. And um, what they found was is that, you know, mature bucks basically start rubbing as soon as their velvet falls. They're, they're already, and that varies from deer to deer. Some deer rub like crazy and others don't rub as much. But as a rule, mature bucks start rubbing first. And the little guys they found, these researchers found, is that, you know, it took them about a month to figure out, you know, what those things were on top of their heads. <laughs> and they, then they started rubbing. And I'm sure a lot of it is, you know, repeating behaviors that they see other deer do and da-da-da-da. But I tell you what, um, you know, that one thing my friend Tom the Logger from northern Wisconsin taught me was, you know, if you, if his magic combination is, A, hot, hot oak, you know, acorns dropping that the deer are using, and then a rub, of any size, he says it makes no difference. And we, I mean, we see a rub on a pencil thin tree, and we're like, "Yep, here we go. We got a big one." And that's played out more more than I've seen. Now, I have seen rubs on really big trees early, but not very often. But I, but when I see rubs on small trees, uh, especially again, this is early, right after you know the week or two after velvet shed. I'm I'm confident I've got a deer that's you know you know he may only be a two year old, but he might be six. You know, right. Right. So, will that get you? Will that get you in the timber? Um, because we all know that, yeah, weather patterns could play a role in getting a big buck on its feet early season. But for the most part, you know, deer movement, especially mature buck movement, is. Pr- this is my opinion. I say it is more controlled by. Uh, the rut and when does begin to cycle as it is weather patterns, let's say even, even into late October, you know, a mature buck who's been through the rut a couple times knows that, you know, Hey, maybe there's probably no need to get out of my bed before dark, uh, even up into the, the mid to late twenties of October. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, it's worth going into a spot with good good sign, even though you, there's a chance that you will bust the deer or the deer will catch your scent after you leave because it's still early and that sign was made at night. Um. Well, you know that's a great question, and it's uh, again I I think it, it depends on on a couple things. One the the scenario itself i mean some of let's face it you know some of these big old deer are just fat and lazy and they don't move very much and so if you find their feeding sign you might be looking at a deer that's bedding less than 100 yards away and sometimes you know significantly less than 100 yards away and it might be a situation where you go you know what i might just have to wait until this buck gets a little more active because i stand a really really good chance of bumping this deer and letting him know that I'm getting hunted, uh, that he's getting hunted. Uh, but conversely, I mean, there, you know, there are scenarios where like, Hey, I, and I've looked at him like I can get in and out of here and I think I can do it without, you know, without, uh, spooking anything. Um, you know, one thing that we've done uh, here in farm country is if we get one of these field edge setups where, you know, and this I mean, this happens from September all the way to January, but, you know, you you hunt an edge, and, you know, what's happening as the afternoon hunt goes by, I mean, the deer are pouring in, or they're coming in, there's, you get, the more, the closer you get to dark, the more deer you have coming, and you wind up with, you know, you, 
a lot of a lot of deer by your stand and sometimes your target buck and you got to get out of there without letting them know you're there and so we've uh, my neighbors and I all hunt together uh, or you know uh, you know in, in similar areas and so we'll just you know text each other have a system worked out that you know hey I got deer by my stand can you come get me and we'll if we can do it we'll drive as close as possible to the to the stand tree and just bump the deer off and get the guy out of there and and then the whole thing happens again tomorrow because you know farm country deer I mean what's a pickup truck to them it's like watching a bird fly over right and that that kind of brings up a cool story um I was hunting on the corner of I was hunting on a a, a fence corner and behind me was big timber. Then I had standing corn, and then I had um, a a CRP field. And on the back side of this CRP field uh, was another standing corn field. Okay. And I watched, or uh, you know, I, I set up running gun, set up right on that corner, and I, I set up there mostly as an observation stand. But there was some good sign along this uh, corn field that was close to me, and. Okay. I got put up the binoculars after I got set up and just was scanning this, uh, scanning the CRP field, just scanning it, scanning it, just, you know, hoping I could see some antlers, you know, amongst all the grass. And, and I did, I, I saw a a buck. It was a three-year-old, uh, that I had been watching from the previous year and a combine starts coming and it comes and it comes and it comes and it comes. And that combine was I'm going to say somewhere uh, between 20 and 30 yards away from that buck. And he did not even move the entire <laughs> night. Right. Didn't jump him at all. So that will tell you right there, just because a combine or a truck or a four wheeler comes down your, uh, you know, comes your way. That doesn't mean your hunt is over in the least. Exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I couldn't agree more. And you know, I was talking to some, uh, I did a seminar down at the Illinois Deer Classic just uh, a few weeks ago, and I, we were talking about this very thing, and I said, you know, I'm a big believer in matching the normal. I mean, whatever the deer hear, that, you know, and what they're used to seeing, that's, that's you know, it, just because it bugs us to hear, uh, you know, perfect example is a chainsaw. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, there's this guy over there cutting wood, and there's no way deer are going to come by me. And as a matter of fact, a really good friend of mine from Illinois had this very scenario play out where it was late season, so of course, you know, you naturally assume that deer are on pins and needles, which they usually are. He was hunting, uh, not making this up, 180-class 8-point mainframe 8 with a bunch of junk on his head. Anyway, was waiting for this deer, kind of had an idea where he was betting, and uh, was sitting up in the tree with his... Uh, uh, with a cameraman and uh, all of a sudden this guy started a chainsaw up on the other side of the field and my buddy was like that's it you know hunts <laughs> over so he sat and listened to that thing for about 20 minutes and then he said that's it i'm done he bailed and his friend that was sitting <laughs> in a stand across the field said yep 20 minutes before dark guess what walked right under your tree so that buck oh, heard that chainsaw God. a million times he doesn't care you know <laughs> oh boy i bet your buddy's still kicking his own butt after that yeah, he is because that deer's still walking. I think. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that was like a year. Yeah, I think that was two years ago, and that deer's still alive. Oh my god, that's a big eight pointer. I love big eights. Yeah, he is. Yeah. All right, so I want to. I, I got you for about ten more minutes, and I want to. I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation here. Okay. You can only hunt until October fifteenth this year. All right, you can't hunt the rut. You, you have to make something happen early season, and 
I'm going to blindfold you. I'm going to drop you off at a farm. You know, your typical ag timber split farm, like we both hunt, but it, but you don't know this farm. What are you going to do to try to harvest a mature buck early season? What, when are you dropping me off? <laughs> like, what? what's the date? <laughs> like, right let's now? Just, yeah, let's just say it's right now today, and you have, let's say, 10 days, 15 days to get it done. Okay. Um, well, the first thing I'm going to do is I am going to you've, – you've been a great host, and you've dropped a, an aerial photo for me, haven't you? <laughs> but even if you haven't, the first you thing I'm going to do is right? I'm going to walk the edges. I'm just going to – I am going to get up high as high as I can, and I just want to get the lay of the land. I want to see how the farm lays, where I think wind directions are going to be, you know, uh, and I can start formulating some basic thoughts about where I think deer might bet on um, where they might feed. Um, then I'm going to spend the middle of, the, of days uh, walking the edges and just kind of getting an idea of where deer, you know, how they use the land. Do they, you know, walk through this waterway? Where do they enter a field? Um, you know, where are some thick points for bedding areas and et cetera? And then in the evenings, I'm going to, I'm just going to glass fields. If I can, if I can get up in a high spot and just get an idea where deer are coming from, um, that's the first thing. But I tell you what, right now I'm a, uh, well, our Minnesota season opens in uh, not nine days, and I've got a farm right now that I haven't been on since last fall, and uh, I'll bet you if there's a good deer on there, and this is no bragging on me, this is just because, uh, you know, of what deer are like. If there's a good deer on that farm, I bet I could walk that farm right now, assuming he's shed his velvet, and I could get an idea of where he, what he's doing. You know, is he is he coming out to alfalfa? Has he found an oak tree? Um, but again, I'm really big on the outside in thing. I'm going to start really non-aggressive. And I'm going to work my way slowly. You know, if I think I need to get a little more aggressive, get into the timber. But uh, I will. But I, you know, I'm going to start back. I'm going to let those deer do what they want to do, and then just try to take advantage of it. Right. I'm going to look for oak trees because uh, acorn drop is happening right now, and uh, yeah, I just. Well, I was just checking trail cams the other day, and I kept hearing this ping, 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 and I'm like, what is that? Well, it was a white oak dropping acorns right on my truck, and I'm like, you're an idiot. Your truck yeah. is doing your oak, oak scouting for you. Right. So anyway, I'm going to find those early season food sources, and I'm going to look for rubs no matter what the size, and then I am going to start picking my stand trees, and yeah, it's going to be fun. I like it. Where are you going to take me? <laughs> Let's just hypothetically, since we're it's all hypothetically, the best farm in Iowa. The best farm in Iowa, yeah. I, and I do get to hunt it in mid September, not wait till the October first opener. <laughs> yeah, you you, I, you know what? You can even hunt it early if you want. Hopefully, you don't get busted. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm just teasing you. Um, right, right. I tell you what, you know, I don't care where you are in the Midwest, or I try the the vast majority of whitetail range the west is maybe the only you know the only exception if you are on to acorns if you can figure out where your oaks are and your preferred oaks i mean that is just a huge deal i talked to my friends in kentucky tennessee you know up in the northeast and it's i mean oaks is where it's at and then if you've got a good acorn year like you mentioned i mean you're you're smart enough to know this is a good acorn year a lot of guys can't figure that out till it's too late you know oh the acorns are good or oh the acorns stink this year 
I mean, you should know that right now. How many, right. you know, how good acorn crops are going to be, and what trees are, you know, what trees are dropping them, and your species. You know, white oaks first; they drop earlier and are preferred by deer, and then red, you know, everything after that. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's learned, a huge, uh, that's a huge chunk of knowledge. Right. Well, one thing I learned, I took away from this conversation was a deer won't eat a right like right now won't eat an acorn with a cap still on it that that that's no that, i've i've found I that happen uh over and over i mean you take a yeah. capped acorn and and slice into a knife or and usually they're wormy or rot man that's crazy that's all that's good intel though that's awesome something i can definitely take into the woods the last question that i want to ask you before we part our ways today is public land hunters right obviously um, I'm blessed to hunt some fairly low pressure property. Um, I'm not sure about w- what you are, but let's talk a little bit about just very high level. Some advice that you could give for a public land hunter uh, who uh, is trying to go out and get it done early season as well. Yeah, um, well, I've, d- I've done quite a bit, I guess, over the years. I, I shot my first buck on public land uh, in Iowa, believe it or not. I was 18 years old. I was 17 years old. Anyway, and I've done quite a bit in the, in the years since. And um, you know, you got to give credit to a guy who knows his way around public land. And I don't I don't claim to be any expert there, but guys that kill bucks on public land consistently know two things: they know how deer behave on those places, and they know how hunters behave. Um, and that second part can take some study. Um, and so what 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 I look for is places that I think are going to receive the least amount of human intrusion as possible. I mean, you're, obviously it's public, there's no guarantees, you know, um, but, you know, are there places that I want, that I'm willing to go that maybe, uh, Joe Lunchbucket doesn't want to? You know, does he have to walk in, uh, you know, a mile with a stand on his back? Does he have to cross a river? Does he have to hike up a big bluff? You know, a lot of hunters will not do that, and I will, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of other hardcore guys are willing to do that. So, you know, you, once you, uh, and, and it's amazing, um, uh, I actually, I have a seminar that I do called Hunting Small Tracks, and I talk about hunting public land, and, and, uh, guys kind of scratch their head, like, what does that have to do with small tracks? And I say it has everything to do with it because you can take a 500 acre chunk of public ground, and there might be two stands on there that I'm ready, I'm willing to hunt. So I'm looking for those little micro spots where, you know, A, there's the deer, and B, there's no hunters. So um, it's kind of a it's kind of a tightrope, uh, and yeah, nobody says it's easy, but that's why you know you got a buddy or a friend you know that can kill good deer consistently on public land. He's he's got it figured out. He's a, he's a good hunter. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Scott, man, I tell you what. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and share some wisdom with us. And uh, let me be the first to wish you uh, good luck this upcoming season. Oh, man, it's been an honor. And uh, I was very flattered that you asked me, Dan. And I tell you what, I I hope you kill a monster. And more importantly, I hope you welcome a wonderful little baby into this world pretty soon. That's the most exciting thing that can happen to a person. Oh, yeah. Number three, man. Uh if you ever if you ever see me again, man, my my beard's gonna be all gray. I, I'm starting to lose my hair. Man, the kids are awesome, but they do some damage too. <laughs> I had a friend the other day say, "Buddy, your sideburns are all gray," and I said, "I have 18 year old twins. I've earned every one of these things." <laughs> 
Oh, that's funny. Uh, well, good luck, brother. You too, man. I appreciate it so much, and uh, let me know when you get that big one. And there you have it. Huge shout-out to Scott for coming on the podcast and uh, talking early season hunting strategy with us. Really appreciate him taking time out of his day. Huge shout-out to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen to this podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, Be sure to keep tuning in. Please go subscribe to this podcast on whatever form you're downloading in it from, I guess, uh, whether that's Stitcher or BeanPod or Podbean, um, iTunes, the app, go download the app, and uh, you should be able to uh, have these podcasts delivered straight to you uh, as soon as they launch. A huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast Exodus Trail Cameras, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, Bighorn Outfitters, Deer Lab, Ripcord Arrests, Wasp Archery, Gearhead Archery, Ozonics, and I think that's it. Other than that, check me out on all forms of social media Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And, you know, I do the, the live Facebook feeds just kind of as a, a blog slash update. And, uh, Please go sign up to become a member of the National Deer Alliance. It's free, and they send you a ton of information on how you can be uh, a, a more well-rounded uh, outdoorsman, as you know, far as uh, deer are concerned. Uh, you get educated, and then uh, you know you can be a part of the movement. Other than that, guys, I, say, I think I say other than that a lot. Other than that, something I need to work on. But this podcast is over. My kids are crying. My wife is super pregnant, so her fuse is really short. I really want to say thank you to her, my wife, for having enough patience for me to knock one of these out when I have to knock them out, do the editing and upload them. She's a trooper. And uh, if you guys are going to be anywhere near a tree, or thinking about hunting this hunting season because, you know, season's here. Wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.